Thanks for listening. With more than four years of weekly discussions for product managers and leaders, we have covered a lot of topics. For the rest of July 2019, I'm bringing back some of the early episodes that I believe are most important for your work and success. A lot of listeners haven't heard these yet, but they are so valuable. I'm also using this time to reformulate the podcast to make it even more valuable for you. More on that later. Now, to the intro. Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, developers, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, who gives you innovation training your customers will love you for. Get ready to take your career to the next level, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, the host of the Everyday Innovator and the founder of Product Innovation Educators, where product managers become product masters. I want to take you back to the 2016 Annual Product Management and Marketing Survey. Uh, we covered that on a previous episode. And one of the interesting things was that survey identified four skills that are responsible for a significant increase in personal income. Product managers that excel in these four areas earn 25% more than product man- managers who don't. One of these skills is called pitch artists, and they define it as the ability to stand up to peers, managers, and executives and sell them your ideas and conclusions. And when it comes to being a pitch artist that's effectively communicating ideas, there's no better expert than Nancy Drarte of the Drarte design firm in Silicon Valley. Nancy is a communication expert who's been featured in several publications, including Fortune, Forbes, and Fast Company. Her firm, Drarte Inc., has created thousands of presentations for the world's top institutions, including Apple, Cisco, Facebook, GE, Google, TED, and the World Bank. She's also the author of Resonate, Slideology, the HBR Guide to Persuasive Presentations, and also co-author of Illuminate, Ignite Change Through Speeches, Stories, Ceremonies, and Symbols, which we will be talking more about in this interview. This interview is a little bit different than past ones. We're going to do it in two parts. I'm hosting the first part, and that first part is focused on how can product managers and innovators more effectively communicate their ideas and get others to join in supporting their ideas. And then I have a co-host who's doing the second part. My co-host is John Latham. You might remember him from a previous episode that we explored transforming organizations. And John's going to introduce the second part. Hi, this is John. In part two, we explore with Nancy what it's like to lead the transformation of Duarte, Inc. and how to grow a company and still maintain creativity and innovations as you add systems and structures. You'll find the summary of the discussion in this transcript, along with the valuable resources that Nancy provides, at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 076. Now to the interview. Nancy, thank you so much for being part of the Everyday Innovator podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you here. I know you have such a background in how we present information and share ideas. And you've written a number of award-winning books on this topic of presenting ideas and really moving an audience through the use of story. And I know your first one was Slideology, and then moved on to Resonate, a great book. And recently, you co-authored Illuminate uh, with communication expert Patty Sanchez. And I'm curious, how has your thinking about really effectively communicating ideas evolved through those works? You know, it's, it's funny because so far, I feel like I'm writing my books in completely backwards order because to start with the slides, like you really aren't supposed to start with the slides. You're supposed to start with thinking and content. So I wrote um, Slideology thinking the biggest problem was people, really, you go and get your MBA, you get a great doctor 
you know, doctorate degree and you're never taught how to be a visual communicator. So we took kind of graphic design language and made a business case for it and, and, and broke it down. And then I realized what, you know, the slides look better, but the talks are still terrible. So then I went on a journey through storytelling and came up with a methodology and discovered this underlying structure the greatest communicators use. And then Illuminate backs it up. Like if you're zooming out, you know, Illuminate is like, wait a minute, my presentation that I'm doing next Thursday or whatever is in service of a larger movement that I'm trying to do, a, a mm-hmm. bigger transformation. So it's like, you know, we just keep kind of zooming out and, and realizing the problem's bigger and bigger and bigger. So we're trying to put our arms around the bigger and bigger communication problems. So with Illuminate, it gets into how do you, how do you use communication to drive transformations or change? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do have a couple, a couple more books about, well, wait a minute, how do you even know what needs to transform? <laughs> you know, and how do you define that? And how do you declare that? So we just keep kind of zooming out and uh, realizing that the problem is bigger than just the slides, like way, way bigger. And uh, it's been fun. Oh my God. We have had, I've had so much fun. I, I just have no complaints about life whatsoever. I'm glad it's been a fun journey. And it's a journey that relates so well to the everyday innovators listening. All of us in product management and innovation, I think we start kind of in the same place, right? We, we recognize, you know, how do we more effectively share our ideas with people? You know, that, 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 that's kind of the, the central thing when we, we first encounter a new idea that we have. And then we realize along the way that that's not, that's not the entire puzzle. You know, we might share the ideas, but we're still not getting people on board with what those ideas are. Yeah. And I love the journey that you've been on to discover the same thing. In Illuminate, there's a great quote I wanted to share with everyone. You said, leaders aren't just the people at the top of the org chart. A leader is anyone who can see a better future and rally people to reach it. Whether you're an executive, entrepreneur, or individual contributor, you have the potential to motivate people through your words and actions. And I love that quote because anyone that's really involved in product management and innovation is certainly part of that list, right? Whether we're in an official leadership role or not, we are mm-hmm. truly trying to motivate people through our words and actions. Mm-hmm. And in Illuminate, you talk about, you know, you write it directly for innovators and how they can influence others to join, join on their plans. And you call innovators torchbearers. Tell us about the the background on this term torchbearers, why you chose that. Yeah, we spent a lot of time on this because I think, well, you know, when when it's called leaders or followers, that just doesn't, it doesn't really capture what we were trying to convey. Mm -hmm. So we landed on torchbearers and travelers. And if you, we were actually kind of inspired by Frodo in the sense that, (laughs) like, he was the bearer of a ring and it came with a burden and you have to be called almost to be a leader, but then you have to accept it almost like a mantle. And so many people just pass it by. Like we, it's so funny when we're like, oh yeah, we've written communication books. This next one's a leadership book. And people will be like, well, I guess that one's not for me. And it just always startles me how even if you're, you know, a product manager or a a parent, like mm-hmm. even if you're a father or a mother, you are a leader and you are going to need to influence the lives and hearts of many. And um, we really liked the concept of bearing a torch because in situations where you need a torch, uh, 
usually it's dark and damp and scary and not well lit and unknown, right? You don't know where right. you're going and you need a torch. And we didn't say searchlight, you know, where you could see for miles. A torch basically illuminates enough right in front of you to make the next few steps bearable and, and understandable. And that's what communication does. It casts just enough light for people to be like, oh, I could go there. That's not that scary. And that's why we really felt like this concept of torchbearer and travelers, because it's a journey and, and the leader should be on the journey with the team and understanding how they're feeling, understanding when they're too tired to keep going, understand when they need their wounds healed and they really need a front row seat at what it's like to go through transformation. And it just felt. I don't know. It just felt right. A first pass that we had, we actually called the the uh, the travelers. We called them troops because <laughs> hmm. we didn't want to say your team. We didn't want to say your uh, partners, your customers. Because it was bigger than just your direct reports. When you're leading a transformation, there's lots of constituents, and troops just sounded too militaristic. It sounded too control and command. But we knew we knew we wanted language that that was. Um, for a journey, you know, mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time with Lewis and Clark, a lot of time with the Lewis and Clark story, how they prepared for the trip, how they understood their enemies, how they understood the, how hard the trip would be and how they planned for it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so those all kind of came together into this concept of travelers and torchbearers. And um, it's actually kind of lovely. We've had a good time with it. That's wonderful. Uh, you know, one of my favorite aspects of the Lewis and Clark story is Seaman, their dog that was their trusty yeah. companion along the way, right? Yeah. And in a sense, he was kind of a torchbearer for them because he was the early warning, you know, at times for them. And yeah. I love how you've gotten away from the, the leadership focus and including really a much wider cast of players, right, by this torchbearer term that, you know, product managers may not always think of themselves as leaders. They certainly become leaders over time. But as you say, this is applicable to the parents or anyone that, you know, we're just, we need to illuminate the next step and get there and then figure out where to go, go from there, uh, yeah. continue on. Yeah. Great term. And speaking about that next step, you do define a full path and you call it the venturescape yeah. mm-hmm. and that we must navigate and you include some tools and the, the tools you talk about, right, are like delivering presentations effectively and how you tell stories to capture people's attention and holding ceremonies and the rituals that are involved. And I really want to encourage the listeners to get your book, Illuminate, so they can really unpack all those valuable tools in there. But let's walk through what what you do call that path, the VentureScape, um, so we can understand the journey. And, And that starts with this first step you call the dream. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, there's a there's a five stage structure that you go through when uh, people are being transformed, and oddly enough, it's also the same structure people go through. A protagonist goes through when they're being transformed during a story. So the five stages are dream, leap, fight, climb, arrive, and the first thing you need to do is have a dr- have a dream, <laughs> have a dream of an alternate future, and as the communicator. That moment needs to be one of inspiration. So in the dream phase, you need to create a moment of inspiration. And to do that, you, you would use speeches, stories, ceremonies, and symbols to um, inspire people. If you, if you think about it, it, it's hard to point to a movement that didn't start with some sort of an impassioned plea. And as experts in the spoken word, um, it's been a real honor to think about uh, when you have a dream, how do you cast it in a way that more people 
people jump in than choose to resist it. And that's mm. the, it's how you frame it. It's how you declare it. It's how you, it's how you stage it. All of those things by stage it. I, don't, I mean, there's a lot of times you declare a dream and you need to be out on a muddy field like William Wallace was in Braveheart, you know? Mm. So it just, it just depends. And you need to really understand the hearts of the people when and how you declare this dream will determine how many people jump in or not. So that's why the second phase is leap. And dream leap are the are the first act of this uh, venture scape. Um, if you say it in a way, it's such a way, people will, bam, they'll want to commit. Um, if there's any resistance, um, they will, you need to create like a, a moment of decision, a moment mm-hmm. where they have to decide I'm in or I'm out. Because um, it really is important to have as many people on board as possible. And then if there are people that are resistant, you need to listen and hear why. So you can address, you know, their fear. You could address them letting go of the past. There's so many things why people won't won't choose to jump in. So that dream and leap are the first of the five stages, but it is the first act um, of the three-act story. And just to underscore the, that dream part, you know, as innovators and product managers, this is what we're doing all the time. Anytime that we are creating something new, there's going to be the kind of the the corporate antibodies that come in and resist yeah. <laughs> that right automatically. Yep. And and we need to recognize that that happens when we're creating something new, and we need to quickly get others on board with the idea and cast kind of that. I love that you said it. You know that passion plead of what this could be like to have this new capability, this new service, whatever the product or services we're looking at. Yeah, it's funny when you, uh, you know, I think leaders in a sense are prophetic in the sense that they understand and can see something in the future. And and what happens when the voice of a prophet, say, rises up, the heretic lashes out against it. So, we have all these like archetypes for each phase too that you really need to understand, you know, who who readily embraces the future and who really loves stasis um, and status quo. Very good. So, that takes us through dream and leap. Mm-hmm. Um, what's next in the in the venturescape? So the next two stages make the messy middle, and that's uh, fight and climb. So just like in storytelling, um, in a really exciting um, adventure movie, you know, there's the high speeds chase, the shooting of the aliens, but getting all clawed <laughs> up all, along the way, usually some sort of a mortal or seemingly fatal wound, like, you know, Frodo got the arrow in his shoulder. There's all the, and then you still have to climb this vast mountain, you know, right. it's like the most exciting and, you know, you're on the edge of your seat, but it is not fun to be the one going through it. And um, I think that one of the reasons this is a visual model is because we really wanted leaders, uh, anyone who's leading a project or leading change or innovating to understand like oh my gosh I see how hard this is and I can see how difficult what I'm asking them to do is because mm. I know as leaders we're just like come on everyone just get there just do what I'm saying you know it's not that hard and and yet we need to really understand the hearts and minds of the people we're asking to do this work and so this fight phase is very important this is when you need to create a moment of bravery you need them to be willing to we we looked at like uh how indigenous people, how did, what did they do before the day of a great big battle? You know, they would dance around a fire or do things, you know, beat their own chests or whatever it is they would do to make themselves feel boldened about the future. And um, you need to create that, that kind of a rally cry um, in the fight phase. And then um, 
in the uh, climb phase, uh, they need a moment of endurance. So in myths and movies, what happens is usually at this phase where they need to really climb out is they make, uh, they have to recommit to what they committed to originally. Usually they're completely in despair. They're discouraged. Not only did they lose the girl, but the alien just won this big fight. And whatever is going on, they feel like they've got to recount the cost again. Is it worth it to continue or do I want to throw in the towel? This is usually then when they get up, they reload all their ammo, (laughs) they run and they go get the enemy again. But there's a moment um, uh, in Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, it's called the inmost cave. Mm -hmm. They go in the deepest part of their soul and they decide, do I really want to keep going or am I going to bail right now? You got to realize that in the climb phase, that's where your people are at. That's where your travelers are. They may not want to continue with you. So you need to give them a moment of endurance. And this is where leaders do these cheesy metaphors like passing the baton or, um, you know, auto racing. And it's like this, you got to get a little more meaningful than that at this phase. It's not really about that. It's about reconnecting them to the dream of why we're doing this in the first place. That's hard. Now, I put it in Mm -hmm. sequential, like fight, climb. But it it really, like, if you can picture the face of a very steep mountain. Now, there's some people that can climb the face of a mountain, but there's not very many. Usually what happens is you go on switchbacks, right? Right. So, really, it's kind of fight, climb. Then you have to go back and fight, climb. And then it's fight, 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 climb, 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 fight, climb, fight, climb, right? So, it's really kind of switchbacks for a while um, until ultimately the third chapter starts. And that's when you arrive. And we get there. The third act. Yeah, you got to get there. And funny thing is, for arrive, we didn't call it like moment of victory. We called it moment of reflection because in reality, you don't always win. You know, it's Western Mm. cultures that always have a positive resolution to the story and life's not that way. Mm -hmm. Like we don't, we don't wake up every day having won and, you know, victory, got the girl killed, the alien life's not like that. We lose a lot. Um, we need to be able to let them know, hey, we tried and we lost. We need to reflect on what just happened. If it's a victory, you reflect on the victory. But even in a victory, there were, there were lessons learned. There were hard things and lessons learned. And so, you need to reflect back, cull out the stories, the the warning stories, the motivating stories, capture those, and then move on. Because, even though that's the resolution, you don't get to just lay in a green meadow and sleep your life away at that point. In reality, you just get a little respite before you have to jump into the next venture scape because that's how life is. It, it, we don't get a break. <laughs> and uh, organizations that are thriving are constantly innovating, which means no sooner do you arrive uh, that you got to move on to the next product. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that you recognize an arrive that it doesn't always mean success, but we should okay. take that moment of reflection and learn what, what did we what did we learn through this whole experience? And as you talk about the fight and the climb and how that you know we're kind of iterating through that so much through this process, the the appeal of what we've done before always looks good to people, right? It's like mm-hmm. that, that that's comfortable, and even if it wasn't working, <laughs> for some reason it's still comfortable. And getting to a state where things are working better is really important in organizations. And when it comes to doing a new product, you know, we're trying to create something that is offering great value to our customers. Yeah. It's a challenge. Yeah. So when it comes to arriving, um, do you have any structure tools for looking back and reflecting on what you do did learn? Yeah. You know, we, we, in the, 
in this section, we kind of uh, allude to the fact that organizations, whether it's the leader or someone else, they need a folklorist. And it is kind of an anthropological job where somebody needs to be watching the stories and how what's told and what are the ceremonies that are done because they have so much power. Like people will latch onto something and create enormous meaning around it. So let's say a new leader comes in or, or the new product's getting launched. You have to be very good at understanding, hey, what stories should we keep pulling forward and what stories actually need to be dismantled? Now, you have to realize mm-hmm. in a culture, stories are almost sacred. <laughs> they're like, you can't just stomp all over them, but there are times where it's like, hey, we need to all acknowledge that this isn't true anymore and we need to create an ending for that and a new beginning so we can make room for wonder and room for exploration. But sometimes we cling to our past, just cling to it and claw at it, want it to still be our truth and we can't let go. And so that's why this arrival phase is important because you can reflect on what do we want to bring forward into our next reinvention and what do we need to leave behind mm-hmm. and consciously doing it. That's kind of the power of ceremony in the book is that's what ceremony is. A rites of passage means, hey, 10 minutes ago I was single, but I just went through a ceremony and I'm married. Right? Nothing really happened different other than that ceremony. It's about leaving the past and entering into a new future. Same with a graduation, same with a bar mitzvah, a quinceanera, mm-hmm. like all of those rites of passage kind of things and organizations need those too. Hey, what we were 10 minutes ago is not who we are right now anymore. And uh, those are important moments that that you need to acknowledge. Um, And a lot of the reflection happens in the arrival phase. Needs to happen all along the way, but... Absolutely. And in those moments, you know, we tell stories to reinforce the culture that we have, or like you said, the culture we want, recognizing what we need to dismantle. Mm -hmm. And the example that came to my mind as you were talking about that was, you know, uh, early days in a startup of, you know, one of the stories that would get told is the the person, and one time it was me, but uh, not not proudly so now, um, you know, work, working all night to, to get something done, right? Mm-hmm. And that was, those things were lifted up as stories, right? The person that, that right. pulls the all-nighter to, you know, accomplish what needs to get done. But as the organization grows, you tend to burn people out if that's what you honor, right? And, and you need to, like you said, dismantle some of those aspects of your culture, and put in ones that are more sustainable and ones that are actually better for your company. Yeah. Which does lead us to the second part of this interview, as I teed up in the in the introduction to this. I'm going to have my co-host, John Latham, talk through with you and get your insights about how do we scale companies and not lose that innovative edge. So I'll turn the mic over to him. So Nancy, you've you've not only written about this and illuminate, but you've you're living it, and you continue to live it um, as you go right, forward. With, so, <laughs> and I, I think that personal experience is what we'd like to talk turn to now and talk about. Because whether you're a product manager who's trying to create an innovative environment and move your team forward, or your whole organization forward, or you're any kind of leader in an organization trying to create a more innovative creative organization, one of the issues we run into is the whole issue of systems and management systems. We've designed systems to run organizations better, but it's a double-edged sword oftentimes. And so some what makes it more efficient and effective sometimes can reduce creativity, innovation, and risk-taking. And so um, you, Duarte is a creative firm, and so a, you wrote in your book about how the lack of management systems had made uh, you wobble a little bit as a company. 
And I'd like to hear from you what your what how you thought about uh, the issues that you faced trying to design in systems and get the efficiency and effectiveness of systems and the ability to manage and at the same time keep the creativity and maybe even improve the creativity. Yeah, it's interesting. We I knew it would be hard. Um, I didn't know it would be that hard. I think that's what women think before they go into a childbirth, too. It was kind of like that. Like, I knew it'd be hard, but I didn't know it'd be that hard. And um, it's interesting because when you are a creative firm, the biggest thing you need your staff to do is take risks. And as we were looking at trying to go global, I knew that I couldn't copy Duarte and paste it anywhere because it was kind of boutique-y. It was different. It was... Um, not even like normal how other agencies were ran, which was actually to our benefit for a season. But we even had a goofy structure where it was almost like I had nine mini studios inside a larger agency. I had account teams that actually almost acted like business owners. And then the uh, artists answered into my account team. That's unheard of. They couldn't be, my designers couldn't be developed. They weren't led by a creative person. And so I unbundled all of that. I had the designers answer into a designer's. I had the account people answer into an account, you know, a powerful executive, <laughs> like those kinds of things. And it, it so unbundling that was was one thing. But then when we piled onto that, this MIS system that was designed for kind of global access, it was actually primarily an accounting tool with a bolted on project management tool. So here we are, this creative firm, and everyone feels like we all work for accounting. Even I did. I was so pissed sometimes. I'm like, I'm in service of accounting suddenly, you know. <laughs> suddenly I have 12 steps to do just so accounting can do their books instead of me doing my best creative work. It was unflipping believable. It was three years of deconstructing a system because what it what it did is it put so many gates in there that it was like we couldn't even be nimble. It was like you had to create a project where it's like step one, step one complete, step two, step two complete. And it it made it to where every job almost had to be managed exactly this. And life's not like that, especially if you're really good at innovation. You should be able to not have to click a 10-point system. You should be able to go point one, point five, back to point two, back to point eight, you know. It was unbelievable and unbearable on everybody. And the same time, we're hitting up against this Dunbar number, which is Robin Dunbar came up with this research that between about 100 and 120 people in a culture, the culture uh, tends to want to subdivide. It wants to break down into silos. And um, so we also have the strain of then people starting to feel alienated. And we had this really great uh, grapevine we had, <laughs> you know, um, it, was, it was just the most tenuous, unbelievable. The good news is I had given permission to the organization to not grow. Like if I was also piling growth on top of that, I had to stall growth. Uh, we went flat uh, for three years while this is all going on, which may be idle hands or the devil's work or something because there was a lot of bitching and moaning too at the same time. And it just was this, this, unbelievable opportunity for a hot mess. And um, so it was um, <laughs> now uh, we're dismantling like a lot of these. We've been doing it now for about the last year, just dismantling almost everything that was put in to honor the creative process um, that we really need. I just did a talk on Monday about the starlings. I'm sure you guys are familiar. It's mesmerizing to watch 
watch these starlings hop up in the air and move and make these collectively beautiful shapes seemingly on their own. And that's the kind of organization I want, this emergent organization, not one that's hierarchical, but one that can form and reform and form and reform around the client needs. And we're getting there. Like we are so close. So I've clustered people into these little tiny teams of seven that have permission to just adapt and move and swirl other people into their little systems. And um, it's going it, to, it's, it's been actually very um, beautiful. So we captured um, our case study only up to the climb phase when everyone was exhausted and needing to get to a point of recommitment. And we've been getting, people were so interested in our own transformation that we're going to release a couple little ebooks because um, we're at a kind of a new phase now. And then, and then I want everyone to be with me rejoicing when we hit the arrival phase. <laughs> so that's where we're at. That was a long answer. Sorry about that. Uh, it was a great answer, and and uh, and and f- I can feel the emotion uh, as you can. struggled with this, and 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 you talk about the emotional toll in yeah. in Illuminate that the workforce and differing views, you know, and they struggle that they went through, and specifically, you you talk about the need. Some felt they should go fast, and some felt they should go that you should go slow. And and I, I'm curious if we can dig into that a little bit about what did you choose to do and if that changed during different phases and and why? In other words, what, what did you consider and how did you make those decisions on whether to go fast or slow? It's so funny, you know, how we were talking earlier about how everyone needs something different in a season of transformation. So half the shop was like, take the Band-Aid off fast. And the others were like, slow down, slow down. So you just can't ever make anyone happy at the same time. Some were excited, some were terrified. Um, but I was actually off writing a book um, during this season of change. I've had two presidents, one for six years and one for four. So I was kind of hearing the rumbling and the dissatisfaction. And then you could, um, you know, there's public forums where you can say what you feel about your employer. And we'd never had people not excited about working here. And there was a small contingency of people that were the ones that were the, I would say, they actually were victims of the organization um, in this season. And so um, we were getting a lot of feedback, like, why can't the executive team just make some decisions? And I didn't know decisions weren't necessarily being made. I wasn't even really on the executive team. I gave someone else power to kind of run my organization. So when I kind of re-entered the shop from finishing Illuminate, I almost burnt up on re-entry. I was like, what the heck is going on here? This is not the culture or the place um, that I designed it to be. And um, I re-engaged and I realized the team was a lot more parched than I thought and a lot more kinks had been inserted in through this MIS system. And I was hearing rumors that there was going to be an exodus, you know, if I didn't do something. So we needed swift decisions and I stepped back into the role of president. So I, I became an operational leader again. Realized pretty quickly that the executive team wasn't really being honest with each other. Like, you really, you know, why can't we sit in a room and say, your delay on that decision is really screwing stuff up, you know? And we needed to have that kind of candor and honesty and, and, um, be one team, like be really united. So I've kind of tightened up that whole team, uh, stepped in, made some swift decisions that needed to be made, but this was not, I didn't do any of that until I had done a listening tour. 
I called a ton of customers. I sat in meetings with a ton of employees and I listened and listened and listened. And it was really bizarro because I would listen to one and they had one perspective, 180 degree perspective. I actually created this big matrix around the polarity of perspectives on different, different, I should actually publish it because it's hysterical on the same issue, the polarity of gaps in the perception around it. And so we made some really swift decisions and nobody would accuse me of not having listened deeply. I had a cross-functional team do what I called an empathy walk. We sat, we took five different project types and talked talked through, not our process, but what does our process look like to our customers? And we realized we have too many steps in our process still. So we started hacking away at steps in the process. Like just, it was really, it was actually really kind of remarkable. Um, I got to the root of the problem as quick as I could. And that I stepped in in September. In January, I re- claimed. I redeclared Duarte's vision and values. I got to say, it it was one of our finest moments. People were crying in the vision meeting. I got a standing ovation and people were like completely re-engaged and excited um, to be rejuvenated again. Um, and and it's coming true. Like I, the plans were there. We had it, da, 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 and it's happening. And people are like, oh my God, things are finally happening. Um, so, it, it, it's been it's been a quite a, quite a journey, and we've done some very clever and interesting things to push these uh, the momentum along. So that's why we kind of want to publish what's happened next. Well, I can't I can't wait to read it. One of the things that uh, comes out is just the iterative nature of the whole journey. Oh yeah, man. And and I think all successful transformations go through that. As as mm-hmm. uh, as ironic or odd as that may seem. The, the linear path, we describe it that way in documents because it's easy to do and it makes sense and people mm-hmm. can grasp it. But, um, it really isn't linear and, and it right. goes back and forth and is often unpredictable. And that's actually one of the things I really like about Illuminate is that it's presented in a sequential fashion, but then it provides the pieces that you can go back and forth and pick and choose and learn and apply as the journey unfolds. And you can use it to address different different areas. So I think yeah. I think from that perspective, it does both. It educates a, a you know the whole journey, but then gives you a resource to dive into as as you need it. Um, during this, you know, there was these emotions. You had to go, you moved forward, you moved back, you decided to undo things. <laughs> Did you hear that in my little? <laughs> <laughs> I just gave you auditory whiplash there. <laughs> And you're in great company because that's how it all happens, and the, and that's how how people figure things out. They a little too much structure, not enough. And I think often we find that you know there's this inverted U or curvilinear relationship between structure and innovation and creativity. A, a little bit of structure or the right amount of structure and the right structure actually facilitates innovation and yeah. creativity. But yeah. then you go past this point, or you implement the wrong structure, and all of a sudden. You're, you're detracting or decreasing the amount yeah. of innovation. Things fall apart really quickly, especially in a tender, creative organization, I think. Not that they uh, need a lot of coddling, but I think your role as a leader of a creative team is, is to create a, like an incubator, this safe, warm, happy place where great things grow. And if you're throwing all these external forces at them that makes them concerned or worried, they're not able to do their best work. And um, I, I like to protect these little incubated chicks and they just do such beautiful things and there were there were all these scary things that they were struggling to process that was getting in the way of their best work 
I read somewhere that you, you don't make a flower grow by pulling on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Flowers grow awesome. because they have sunshine, water, soil. And and so speaking of that environment, and, and people had to move around in your organization. You talked about how some of them had to take on new roles and responsibilities uh-huh. that hadn't been – they didn't have the experience for or the knowledge, skills, and abilities for. Um, talk a little bit about how you prepared people to be successful in their roles and – to be tolerant when, as they were growing and learning? Yeah, I had to get up a couple times and, and ask permission to give these people space that I was asking them. I remember I used this metaphor of like, they're huge shoes they're going to step in. And if you've ever seen a clown with really large shoes, it's just awkward at first. And, and the clown metaphor might not have been the best, but, but that's how it is. It's like, give them some patience. It'll be a little awkward, but then they'll grow into the shoes and they'll be normal sized shoes. And the first thing I did, like I have my own little bank of literature. I handed each of them. I mean, they had to go from not manager to manager. And um, we just kind of turned the switch because we didn't have a choice. Um, I, but I gave them a one minute manager, which is such a classic in the book, Gung Ho. Um, I do, I do ask them to read a, a couple of books a year. Um, this year, the whole company is going through crucial conversations. And I think that's the hardest part of being a manager is, you know, having the guts and the passion to actually follow through on conversations to hold people accountable. And so crucial conversations where, um, uh, everyone in the shop's going through it. We've already had the whole pilot group and second batch go through. And I just facilitated, uh, uh, we're doing these uh, practice conversations. And so I picked a couple topics that are chronic in a, in a billable creative environment. And that's, why is your billability so low? And why are your job tickets not in? <laughs> you know, those are conversations they have to have almost every day or whatever. And because it's just time tracking. And so we rehearse, they rehearse critical conversations and we rehearse them and make them feel comfortable. And I, I was really started, startled after the first rehearsal, how many of those conversations happened immediately. It's just fear. It's fear of being rejected or fear, fear that you won't be liked and, and all those things. Cause you went from being these people's peer to being the one who has to hold them accountable. And so that's been um, working really well. It's creative people are perfectionists, right? And they rarely will just wing it and, and jump into something that they can't be perfect at. So letting them fail, letting them take risks, telling them it's okay. Um, and we haven't had, you know, the account people felt like, well, I was a better manager. Um, but what's happening is we're seeing stronger creative. And that's what the goal was. I wanted to see stronger creative output. Yeah, maybe the account person was totally comfortable having a conversation about billability because that, you know, drives their profit. But it, those aren't the, weren't the critical conversations. The designers now are making their direct reports into master craftsmen and a, an account person couldn't do that. And so it's been really lovely um, to see this kind of rise of the creative voice. Um, so what I just did Part of what I did when I stepped in is I created what I call, was calling guilds, and I, I looked into Florence, and Florence was the most thriving city in the Middle Ages, and that's because they had guilds. And a guild was the marriage between a creative person and a merchant, and it had never been done before. And that's what we have here at this creative shop. It's a combination of the creative and the merchant. So I came up with this little guild structure, and the guilds belong to a neighborhood, which if you go to Florence, they're very big on what neighborhood you're in. It's all part of the ancient 
guild structure. And it's just re-infusing because the, not only was Florence the most flourishing financial city, but it was the most artistic, um, city too. And the guilds took such pride in the work. There was a symbol that they would emblaze on all the work. And if you saw a symbol from Florence, you knew it was high, high quality work from Florence. And so I'm trying to re-infuse this, these small, tiny, nimble teams, um, that that are uh, master craftsmen like the artisans of Florence. And um, it's, just been, it's just been kind of fun. I haven't been an operational leader for a decade, and I think I needed to step back in and kind of press my heart and intent back on the people um, while I look for another operational leader. I, I, I love the metaphor about Florence. I've, in some of the work I've done, I, I've called for a renaissance of management thinking. And I think we're, we really are going to have to rethink how we managed for this century. I do, too. I do, and, too. And there's just a heck of a lot of people out there doing that, including yourself and, and your organization. And uh, I think that's healthy and good. And I think um, the Florence metaphor is, is really appropriate. Speak, speaking of uh, creativity and growth and learning and the fact that this is an iterative process, which, if it's done right, is a learning process – um, there's a whole lot of lead, every, most of the CEOs I've dealt with over the years or senior leaders I've dealt with that have led successful transformations. They, they found themselves personally changed by the process. And, um, some of them didn't even realize it was going on at the time until much later. And they realized how much they had changed. And some of them were on a journey of a very, um, systematic change themselves, reflection and, mm-hmm. and, and learning. How, how, what do you think, um, how has this transformation with Duarte and writing the book changed you as a leader along the way? Uh, and, I, yeah. <laughs> big time. Big. In, in five minutes. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, you know what is fascinating is it was really meta to be working on a book about transformations while my own shop was going through the largest transformation ever. And I'm an impatient leader and and I'm also referred to as a hummingbird. It's like, I'm just all over the place. Like, ding, 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 ding. I just, you know, that's why I have to have a different operational leader. And so I'm totally trying to drive. I'm not even driving the transformation. I'm kind of observing the suffering of my team, right? And I'm co-writing with my chief strategist. And we would um, rent a... Um, we would rent a meeting space over at the hotel and just spread all our stuff out all over the walls. And do, we'd hunker down and do these like weeks of writing. And there were a couple of those weeks that were so poignant and the nerves of the team were so frayed. Um, I would come in and just be like, I don't get it. You know, frust- you know, typical frustrated leader. I don't understand it. This is stupid. I don't get, you know. And my co-author is an empath, like an empath. If you look that up, it's like someone with supernatural abilities to be empathetic, you know? And she would be like, well, Nancy, let's consider what life is like for them right now, you know? And I and I would just, I would be so blown back by an alternate perspective to mine that I realized how flawed I was, right? That I'm only looking through my eyes and my eyes are the only ones that matter. And she would just kindly and just matter-of-factly say, let's consider an alternate reality. <laughs> and a couple of times, like, so poignant um, and so rich in that moment and said with such kindness and lovely, my co-authors, unflipping believable, that I changed. I changed. I, I um, 
a whole longer story, but I, I've struggled with empathy all my life. In fact, I, I got a C minus in speech communication in college. I got an A plus for my visuals. They didn't have PowerPoint then, so you had to do posters and props and all this stuff. So I got an A plus in that, but I got an F in content that connects to the audience. I wasn't bringing anything of interest that the students would be interested in. And I think sometimes it's failures like that. Oh, connecting to an audience that we're exposed. Now you have a choice when a failure like that's exposed. You can run and hide and be a victim or you can spend your lifetime overcoming that flaw. And I demonstrated very young that I lacked empathy. And so if you look at all my work, you know, illuminate that whole model where you can see your travelers and how they feel is a model of empathy. Resonate has the persuasive story form. It's also a model of empathy. So you can see my body of work is actually me as a leader clawing away at my own flaw of this empathy void. And uh, I would say illuminate changed me. In fact, it's hysterical because I've had to open the book twice for talks I've had to do to be like, okay, let me orient myself to where the person is that I'm about to talk to. <laughs> and I whip out the communication toolkit. I'm like, okay, okay, good. Okay. And then I craft my talk. So um, yeah, I'm reading my own material and applying it to my own life. So it definitely changes you to write a body of work like this. It was fun. It, it certainly does. Nancy, this has been very uh, illuminating, <laughs> and um, uh, that was not intended. But uh, the uh, your book is fantastic, and anybody leading a journey is going to just love it because uh, the communication part. We talk about communication all the time, and every time I've ever talked with organizations that are having trouble with change, communication is always brought up as a key component. Uh, but but we've always talked about change, and then we've talked about communication, and, and you and your co-author and Illuminative have brought this together so nicely that it makes it easy for any leader to pick this up and use as a guide to, to help them along the way as they're, they're facing all these issues. Thank so you. <laughs> thanks for sharing, and it, uh, yeah. it's been a, been a great time. Thank you. And Nancy, as my listeners know, we always like to wrap up with an innovation quote, and mm-hmm. I asked you to bring us one. Can you share that and why you chose it? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, innovation is a lot about creating a future people long to be with you on this journey. And so I picked a quote, I don't even, I never know how to say the name, but it's Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. <laughs> and it's, uh, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people together to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Wow, that, that takes us back to the dream casting, right? Exactly. <laughs> Painting that powerful vision. So th- thank you for sharing that. You know, we can get you. caught up into the project management task and it just becomes drudgery if we lose track of why we're doing it. Exactly. And most importantly, how can listeners find out more about the wonderful resources you make available and uh, for communicating ideas and certainly your Illuminate book? Yeah, we have a lot of content that's, I think, super interesting at Duarte.com. Um, you can get a visual executive summary of Illuminate at Duarte.com slash Illuminate. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Nancy Duarte. Patty's on Twitter at Patty San. It's P-A-T-T-I-S-A-N. Um, we have at Duarte as a Twitter handle. And Patty and I do connect to anyone who connects to us on LinkedIn. So that's all the ways to get a hold of us. Wonderful. And I will put all that information in the show notes for listeners, too, to make it easy. And that resource that you shared, the the visual uh, 
uh, of Illuminate the Journey is just wonderful. And I encourage everyone to uh, go and download that. Nancy, thank you for your time today. Okay. Thanks a ton. I so much appreciate this Everyday Innovator community. Thank you for listening and thank you for telling others about this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information from Nancy. And if you want to find the resources that she discussed, you can get them at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 076. I also provide a summary of the discussion, the transcript, and links that are helpful. Thanks, everyone. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to product innovation training your customers will love you for. To learn more, please check out the blog at theeverydayinnovator.com. Keep innovating.